before we get started, uh, let's go ahead and bow for a word of prayer. Uh, dear Lord, I just uh, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for our study in the book of Judges and for uh, the example of Samson um, that you have given to us. And just pray that we may uh, take your word seriously and that we would just as we go through your word, uh, just be convicted of the truths that you have uh, for how we ought to live and for who you are, so that when time comes, when we're tempted, uh, we will not give in and compromise, and that we can continue to be a people that uh, would honor you. So I just thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so back in chapter 13, uh, things were looking as if they would turn around for the Israelites. Right? They were going to have a new judge, and by all accounts, this judge was going to be different. He was going to be special. Right? He was created for the specific purpose of delivering Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, throughout the course of Israel's history, God has brought about some extraordinary men to do some extraordinary things, and oftentimes, these men come about by means of an extraordinary birth. Usually, the extraordinary birth comes from those who, from women or parents who are, who are barren, right? those who by no means other than a miracle of God would ever have any children. First, you, think, you can think of the patriarchs, right? Sarah giving birth to Isaac, right? the promised heir of Abraham. You have Rebekah giving birth to Jacob and Esau. Right, Jacob being the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, then you have Rachel giving birth to Joseph and Benjamin. Right, Joseph saving his brothers uh, from famine and sustaining the birth of a nation. Then later, you'll have Hannah, the mother of Samuel, right, the prophet that would usher in the era of the kings and the royal line of David. And then lastly, you have Elizabeth, right, the mother of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the true Savior. So when God opens the womb of a barren woman, then that child you can expect is going to be used by God in a very mighty way. Right? They're all key members that drive the narrative of Israel and ultimately God's overall purpose in fulfilling his promises. And these children born of miraculous means are the instruments of God to fulfill his covenants. Right? Covenants that he's made uh, from David to Abraham all the way back to Adam. And now... Here in the book of Judges, when hope is bleak, we find ourselves with a pair uh, or with a run-of-the-mill Israelite couple who come from and live in a no-name kind of town who give birth to a son by miraculous means. Right? And the Bible tells us that that can be a pretty good recipe for a savior. And that's where we left off. Now, I didn't know that uh, when preparing um, for tonight, uh, usually uh, the guys from the admin team, they will email and say, hey, can we have the, uh, can we have the discussion questions uh, or if you have any slides that you want to put up so that we can put it up for you. I did not know that we needed a title. Um, normally the titles are already there, so it's the last thing I think of. So it was hard. I was panicked. Did not know I needed to do this. This is this is perhaps the most difficult part of tonight. But but last week I believe the title was "A Savior Is Born." Um, so our title for tonight is "A Savior and His Secrets." A Savior and His Secrets, and we'll look at four secrets. Four secrets that help Israel understand their deliverer. Okay, four secrets that help Israel and really us uh, understand their deliverer. Um, so we'll just kind of read through the text as we go along. Uh, the first secret, uh, number one, it's the secret of mission. The secret, or you can say the secret of mission. Verses one through four. Um, so I'll read um, just the first two verses here. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. 
We're not given the privilege of knowing why Samson would go down to Timnah, but that's okay. Right? The reason for his travel really isn't what's important. Okay? It's the result. Immediately, we are greeted with a preview of Samson and his weakness. Right? After all the buildup of the previous chapter, you can already sense that there's a downward trajectory in tone um, just after these first couple verses. So Samson and his family, uh, as we found out last week, they're from a town called Zora. Right? So that's uh, Samuel's, or Samson's hometown. And Timnah, um, that's a town, those two towns are relatively close together, uh, maybe about um, four miles apart. So uh, Timnah is about maybe four miles southwest of Zora. Well, these towns are on the border of Dan, uh, one of the uh, tribes of Israel, and Philistine territory. So Zora is kind of around the edge of Dan, and then Timnah is kind of around the edge uh, where the Philistine territory ends. And in our text, you will see numerous occasions where Samson, it says Samson went down, right, went down to Timnah. Um, generally, when the Bible gives us directions about going up and down, uh, it's not how we see or we use up and down geographically. When we say up and down, we usually mean north and south, right? We say, I went up to Seattle or I went down to L.A. Uh, usually when the Bible uses up and down, it means uh, change in elevation. So Zora is a little bit higher up in elevation than Timnah, most likely. Uh, but you can't help but to notice that uh, as we read, um, the phrase went down appears quite a lot in our text. And so when we see that phrase, right, when we see went down, um, usually what follows isn't very good. And, and that's what happened, right? Samson went down in verse one. He went down to Timnah. Uh, so what's happening? Samson sees one of the daughters of the Philistines. And so that kind of starts suspiciously, right? I mean, this is the time of judges um, in this era. If it sounds bad, it's probably going to turn out bad. And our suspicions are confirmed in verse 2. Right? Samson very directly says to his parents, get her for me as a wife. Right? And something we should probably understand um, back in those days is that there really uh, was no dating. Right? There's no getting coffee, no getting bagels. Marriages were arranged by the parents of the potential bride and groom. Right? It was essentially a transaction that took place uh, between the parents. You want my daughter to marry your son? Well, this is how much it will cost. Okay? No proposals as we know it. Uh, no DTR. Okay? Just determine the price. And that's it. And some of you ladies are probably thinking, you know, that's you, right? Right? You. And some of you guys might be thinking, huh, that's, that's biblical, isn't it? That's, it's in the Bible. Well, that's Samson's request, right? But it's not really a request, it's, it's a demand. Right? And we see the response of Samson's parents in verse 3. Right? So verse 3 reads, Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you would go to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. So this is pretty solid advice from the parents, right? I mean, this is the time of judges, and in an era where everyone just kind of does what they want, uh, you just never know what someone's going to say or what someone's going to do. Um, but what we, from what we can tell from the previous chapter, it's not too surprising then that Samson um, very likely had some pretty godly parents, right? I mean, we remember that God told them that their son was going to be, or who that he was going to be, right? Samson was to uphold the vow of the Nazarite, from the womb to the day of his death. And not only that, he was to begin the deliverance of Israel from one of their chief rivals and enemies, the Philistines. Right? Manoah and his wife, they knew what they had in their son. Right? They knew that he was supposed to be special. Right? He was created and set apart by God for his purpose. So with this knowledge, they seem genuinely concerned to know, you know how are they supposed to raise their son. They also experienced the presence of God firsthand, right? And they responded with the proper reverence and fear. And by all accounts, they heeded the instructions of God in raising Samson as a Nazarite. So it's not surprising then that Samson's parents would sound so shocked or they would sound so disheartened or disappointed at Samson's request. Right? Why? Why would you do this? 
right? Their son is supposed to be delivering, from, delivering them from the hands of the Philistines. He's not supposed to be joining their hands in marriage. And you can just imagine how disheartened they must have been to hear these words from Samson. And from the moment God opened the womb of Manoah's wife, and they did all they could to raise Samson as they were instructed. And Samson from the womb had no wine or any grape product transferred from his mother. And by all accounts, God was with them as they raised him. We look at how chapter 13 ends, and it says there in the last two verses, Then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. And the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. Now, at first glance, hearing the parents' response without having a grasp of the law and its purpose, someone might say, well, you know, what's the big deal? Right? What's the big deal? For Samson to marry someone of a different race or a different culture. Right? But we understand that the argument with their, well, the parents' argument with Samson's desire isn't one of race or culture. Right? They're not concerned with ethnic or cultural purity. Right? The purity that they're looking for is spiritual. Right? And who at this time, more than anyone else, should be spiritually pure? Right? It should be Samson. Right? He's their deliverer. He's supposed to be a savior for Israel. Right? Why would you want to marry a pagan woman? Why would you want to marry someone who doesn't serve or know God? Right? Why would you want to marry a woman who worship idols? Okay. Now, technically, right, you could say or one could say that marrying a Philistine wasn't a sin. Right? God did forbid Israelites to marry certain um, Canaanites or certain peoples in the land that they inhabited, right? And the Philistines weren't on the list. Uh, I will read for you Deuteronomy 7, chapter 7, 1 through 4, and this is what it says. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4 says this. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears, a, clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord God delivers them before you and you defeat them, you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Okay, and then this is verse 3. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. And then here's the reason in verse 4. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. Right, there's the warning. Right, there's the warning before the Israelites ever step foot into the promised land that God gives them. That's the warning. And if you remember back in the beginning of Judges, this is what happens in Judges chapter 3. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And this is verse 6 of chapter 3. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. And the anger of the Lord kindled against Israel. And there we have the judges. Right? So maybe Samson wasn't really breaking the letter of the law, but he wasn't following its heart. Right? God, didn't, God says not to intermarry. Why? Because they will turn your heart away from God and cause you to serve their idols. Right? God wanted separation from his people and the nations around them. So when you study the law, you will come to find that one of the main themes of the law is separation, or in other words, it's uh, a distinction. Right? There are a lot of laws that when you read, you kind of wonder why they're there. Right? Maybe they're just kind of like randomly placed there. And here's one from Deuteronomy chapter 22, 11. It says this, You shall not wear a material mixed of wool and linen together. You read that and you think, well, well like, what's the big deal? Mary wearing two different types of material at the same time. Like, what's the big deal with that? Well, that's what the other nations did. 
and that's maybe what they wore. But Israel was to be distinct, even down to their clothing. Right? Israel was to look different. They were to speak different. They were to act different. Right? Everything about them was to be distinct from the rest of the nations around them. Right? So when the foreigners, when they would come and they would travel through Israel, they would notice just how different everything was. Right? They would also notice just how abundant and plentiful the land was, and it would likely lead them to ask, well, what is this place? Everything is different. Everything is better. Then the Israelite would say, right, it's because of our God. Right? Let me tell you about him. Right? He created the heavens and the earth. He brought us out of slavery in Egypt and through the wilderness. The foreigner may ask, well, how did he do that? Well, how did you guys do that? And then the Israelite would say, well, we, we walked. Right? Just out of Egypt, yes, we walked. How did you guys get through the Red Sea? Well, we walked. And through the wilderness, we walked. And Jordan River, right? we walked. Then how did you get past Jericho? Right? Well, we walked. We walked seven times, but we walked. Right? And you say, your God did all this. Right? And they're like, yeah. And the foreigner would, you know, knowing who this God is, right, seeing the land for himself, seeing the people for himself, hopefully it will cause him to turn away from his gods and turn to follow the true God. So Samson, maybe he wasn't breaking the letter of the law, but he certainly wasn't following its heart, right? And as an aside, you know, maybe one of the things that you come away, you can come away with um, when you're reading the law or re reading the laws in the Old Testament, um, one thing might be this. You can see how seriously God takes the testimony of his people. Right? And so when you read the commands of the New Testament, and see how we as Christians are called to be distinct from the world too, right? You can remember just how serious God takes the behavior and the testimony of his people and his church. Uh, but back to Samson. Um, if Samson was raised in the way of the Lord, right, he should have been keenly aware of the laws and statutes that he, not just as an Israelite, but as their deliverer ought to follow. Right, his heart should have been wholly devoted to the Lord. Right, he should have followed the truth of God's word above all other things. But what was his response to his parents? Right, you look back in verse 3 and it says, and he says, get her for me, for she looks good to me. The ESV translates Samson's words literally. It says, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Right, all the buildup of chapter 13, all the hope of a deliverer, all uh, a deliverer from their enemies, all the hope for change, all the hope for Israel finally turning the corner and becoming the people that they were supposed to be for God, right, seemingly all gone. Right? In that one phrase, she is right in my eyes. Right? What does that say? Right? It reveals that Samson, right, Samson, our savior, Samson, our deliverer, he's just like just like everybody else, right? He's no different than the rest of Israel. So if you take a step back and, you know, you remove yourself from the reading of the book of Judges just as a story, um, we can look and find the spiritual implications of Israel's and also Samson's mindset, right? And we see the tragedy that follows uh, when God's people do what's right in their own eyes. Right, when they are led by their own desires and they're not anchored and wholly committed to God and his word. Right? It's a warning. But a lot of times, if we dig deep and we examine the motives in our lives, right, the book of Judges, even the life of Samson, right, it can be more than a warning to us. Sometimes it's a mirror. Right? It's a mirror. There are so many lessons that we can learn from the life of Samson and the times of the Judges, and uh, I'll give you one of them here. Are you looking at the world through your eyes, or are you looking at the world through God's eyes, right? through his word? Right? Are you looking through the world through the truths of scripture? Right? When we think about our goals, when we think about the things that we hope to accomplish, what's our motivation behind them? Uh, because if we're not careful, we will easily get choked out by the things and the pleasures of this world. I'll share with you um, something that the Apostle John wrote. Uh, 
he said this. He said, do not love the world nor the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then this sounds, right, this sounds very much like the judges. This sounds very much like Samson, right? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, it is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The world is passing away and its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Well, after the Manoah family argument over the Timnite woman is over, we get the first secret that's revealed uh, to the reader, and that's found here in verse 4, right? That's the secret of the mission. And verse 4 reads this. However, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now, at that time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel. So here in verse 4, the reader is given a privileged view of God's plan that Samson's parents are not. When Samson makes his request to marry a pagan wife, his parents implore him to do what's right. Yet Samson ignores his counsel and wants to go his own way. The hope of a deliverer seems lost. But what this verse shows is that hope for deliverance is not lost. And it's not lost because God's plans aren't dependent on man. God's plans are dependent on God. Neither man nor sin can alter the plans of God God will accomplish his will. Right? Remember Joshua and his brothers? Uh, Genesis 50, verse 20, I believe it is. And Joshua says, as for you, you went evil against me, but God meant it for good. Right? One thing to remember, however, is that just because God can even use our circumstances or use the circumstances surrounding sin, uh, it doesn't absolve us from sin. Right? Just because God used the actions of Joseph's brothers to establish uh, Joseph is in, in Egypt doesn't mean his brothers weren't guilty. And we can see that God uses Samson's sinful actions as an opportunity to defeat the Philistines, but it doesn't mean that Samson isn't guilty of his sin and that his sin won't bring about serious consequences, as we will find out later. But we remember in chapter 13 that God said that Samson would begin to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. And that's exactly what God will have Samson do. God will accomplish his will in Samson, whether his parents or even Samson himself knows it or not. We could spend a lot of time talking about God's sovereignty here. Um, Not just here in the text, uh, but in all of life and all time and eternity. Uh, But we can do that another time. But for now, uh, we have more secrets to uncover. So on to our next secret, uh, and that's found in chapters, uh, verses 5 and 6. And that's our next secret, um, the secret of the lion, the secret of the lion. Uh, Verse 5 and 6 reads this. Uh, Then Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother, and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came roaring towards him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that he tore him as one tears a young goat through, though he or tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. So in our next scene here, uh, we find Samson and his parents uh, going down to Timnah possibly to work out uh, betrothal between Samson and the Philistine woman. Again, uh, going down to Timnah usually means um, it's not for a good reason, right? And we're not sure why Samson's father Manoah would be willing to do this, um, but we're given, but we're just given um, that God had allowed it, right, in verse 4, and that's good enough for us. So for whatever reason, his parents were not present at the time, but a young lion as it says in the text, comes roaring towards him. Uh, The text indicates, or um, the lion is roaring towards him, right? He's looking to attack, he's looking to kill. So now we get a preview of Samson's strength, right? This strength that Samson has, that God has placed in him, right? It It says, Samson tears through the lion like one tears through a young goat. I've never tore through a young goat or any animal Uh, except with maybe like a fork and knife. So I'm not sure 
what that feels like, but you kind of get the idea, right, that this lion, this apex predator, one of the deadliest, strongest creatures in the world, was taken down by Samson like it was a baby farm animal, right? We don't know why Samson keeps this secret from his parents, but as we get to know him better, it kind of fits his character, right? He's a guy that just kind of wants to do his own thing. Uh, he's also a guy that likes to keep secrets, and once his secrets are revealed, trouble seems to follow. Now, because we're all, you know, very familiar with Samson and the supernatural strength he possesses, this isn't really a surprise that it happens, right? But the key phrase here is, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, right? Samson was able to tear that lion apart because the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Right, that phrase is key because it reveals the true source of Samson's strength. And we, we may have grown up uh, with stories just thinking that Samson's strength comes from his hair, right? And once his hair is cut, then his strength is gone. And I mean, that's true, but it's, you know, also kind of not true. I mean, it's true in the sense that in Samson's life, he did lose his strength when his hair was cut or when he lost his hair. But ultimately, it was God who gave and took away Samson's strength to accomplish his purpose as Israel's deliverer. Right, but not only does this section reveal the true and ultimate source of Samson's strength, but it also foreshadows how Samson will accomplish deliverance from the Philistines. So as we go over the texts uh, of Samson's life over the next few weeks, you know, you pay special attention to the times when Samson has a victory against the Philistines. In those times, don't be surprised if you see the phrase, the Spirit of the Lord accompanying Samson. And so even though it looks like he's kind of going out, doing his own thing, or acting out of anger against the Philistines, remember verse 4 of this chapter. Right? It was God who was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. So as we move along, we come across our third secret. Right? So we have first the secret of his mission in verses 1 through 4, uh, the secret of the lion in verses 5 and 6, and then now the secret of the honey in verses 7 and 9. And so verses 7 and 9 read this. So he went down and talked to the woman, and she looked good to Samson. When he returned later to take her, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion, and behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. So he scraped the honey into his hands and went on eating as he went. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them as they, and they ate it, but he did not tell them that he scraped the honey out of the body of the lion. Right, Samson, Samson is unfazed, right? Even after the encounter with a lion, right, he continues his mission to meet the woman, right, to meet the Timnite woman. Now, Maybe many of you ladies, if you had some guy and he had a brush with death and he still kept his date with you, you would be impressed. But you would think that Samson, though, after his encounter with this lion, it would cause him to stop and think, right? Maybe it should have recalibrated his thinking or he might come to his senses that what he was doing, right, pursuing this Philistine woman was wrong, right? But it doesn't. Right? His will to pursue the desire of his flesh is too strong, right? He only has one desire, and it's for this woman. And why? Right? It's repeated again a second time. The verse, uh, verse says, she looked good to Samson, again, literally, because she was right in his eyes. Right, Samson, and here's the phrase, right, went down again to Timnah, and again, the results aren't good. Right, his flesh compromises his spiritual purity. So sometimes later, as the text reads, it's probably maybe about a year. Uh, that's usually about how long it takes to complete um, the betrothal process um, up to the wedding date. Uh, Samson returns to the place where God enabled him to kill the lion, and so what does he see? Right, he sees the lion's body. Right, there's been time for it to decompose, and interestingly enough, bees have inhabited the carcass, 
of the lion and have produced honey inside. So you can kind of go back and forth and, um, you know, scholars probably go back and forth uh, about whether or not Samson may have broken his Nazarite vow here. Right? Remember, the Nazarite vow, number six, says that the Nazarite shall not go near a dead person. Uh, some translations say near a dead body. Uh, the context there might suggest that it's talking about people, so maybe touching a dead animal, maybe not breaking the Nazarite vow because it's not a person. But that really doesn't matter. Um, even if the Nazarite vow restricted coming into contact with dead people, um, Leviticus 5 verse 2 um, stipulates that if a person touches any unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of unclean cattle or a carcass of unclean swarming things, though it is hidden from him and he is unclean, then he will be guilty. Right? Samson's actions made him guilty uh, of breaking the law, if not breaking his vow. Right? It's almost like this was a test for him. Right? Would Samson have remembered this encounter with the lion? Right? Would he have remembered what he was enabled by God to do? Right? Well, whether that crossed his mind or not, we don't know. Um, but what we do know is disappointing. Right? We know that Cham Samson, we know that he chose to sin. This leads us to uh, the revelation of that third secret right, in our passage, the secret of the honey. Right? Samson kept his sin of eating honey from the dead body, a secret from his parents. Right? Maybe he didn't uh, want them to know how easily he cast aside his Nazarite vow by touching a dead body. Um, but just to think, if that's true, right, you have his parents who raised him his whole life at, at this point, right? raised, raised him up to be a Nazarite. Right, to the point where his own mother refrained from any wine or grape or a grape product while he was still in the womb, right? because Samson was supposed to be Israel's deliverer. And he seemingly throws it all away for what? Right, for some honey that he sees in the room. Right, two times he's tempted, first with an idol-worshiping woman and second with unclean food and each time he gives in. And we're coming to see that Samson is a man that's driven by his flesh. Right? This is a picture of someone who compromises. Right? We've seen this over and over with the judges. Right? The Israelites compromise, and their compromise leads to sin. That's what the Israelites do when they decide to do what's right in their own eyes, not, not what's right in God's eyes. Right? They just do whatever they want regardless of what God's word says, right? So they're just ready to cast God aside, right? The God that brought them out of slavery in Egypt, the God that led them through the wilderness, and the God that brought them into the promised land, and all they had to do was walk, right? Temptation comes to them, and all they can do is give in and appease their flesh by loving and serving other gods, right? Gods that promote sensuality, prosperity, right? all the things that the flesh want. But the secret of Samson's compromise, right, as we see, it doesn't just affect him, does it? Right? He then gives the unclean honey to his parents who have no idea where it comes from. Manoah and his, Manoah and his wife they did their best, probably, right, to raise someone who was to be their deliverer. And what did Samson do? Right? This delivered her. This deliverer just delivered them into sin. And as we account for all of Samson's actions so far, we're getting a pretty good picture of the type of man that he is, right, and how little regard he has for his position and how little regard he has for the calling that God has for him. So something for us to think about, right? how much regard do you have for your calling? Right? As Christians, just like the Israelites, right, we have a calling for how we ought to live. Is a lack of regard for your calling leading you or maybe leading others to sin? Well, the encouragement is simple. 
don't compromise. Don't compromise. You see, when we start to compromise, we start to rationalize. We start looking for ways to convince ourselves that our sinful thoughts or sinful actions are okay. We then make sense that make the sense that giving into the flesh is okay, and then we just disregard God's word. So how do you, how do you battle compromise? Uh, what do you do? Uh, one way, uh, one way is to have conviction. Right? You battle compromise with conviction. Right? Conviction that whatever God says, that's what you will do no matter what. Right? Let God's word cut through you, right? cut through your joints, cut through your marrow, and pierce your soul. And under the power of the Holy Spirit, walk accordingly. We have and we will see what the Spirit of the Lord will and will do in Samson, right? And you have the same God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling inside you. And so now we've arrived to the final secret that's revealed in our text, right? The secret of the riddle. The secret of the riddle. Uh, This is uh, verses 10 through 19. I'll read verses 10 and 11, and it says this. Then his father went down to the woman, and Samson made a feast there, for the young men customarily did this. When they saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. So here we go, down again, right? They went down again, and again, the results are not good. It looks like Manoah has actually arranged for the wedding to take place, Again, we're not given a reason why Manoah would allow for this union to take place since he and his wife were so against it. Um, but again, we remember verse 4. Right? We may not know why Manoah allowed this to happen, but we know that God did, and we know why that God did. So Samson gets his way. Right? He gets to celebrate, and he has a feast. Uh, the feast here uh, literally means a drinking feast. Right, and you think of a drinking feast, uh, that means drinking wine. And so, it makes sense, right? That's the custom, young men getting together to have a drinking party to celebrate a special occasion. It's not that unusual. So you can say that um, you may want to give Samson the benefit of the doubt, right? The text doesn't explicitly say that Samson participated in any drinking, um, but given what we know of our judge and his character, right, it kind of fits the profile that he probably did. Uh, and if so, um, then we have in our account so far two pretty good arguments that Samson has already broken two of the three components of his Nazarite vow, right? not to touch dead bodies and not to drink wine. The last part of the Nazarite vow, if you remember, is not cutting your hair. So at least he hasn't done that. And in our last secret, then we find in the text, uh, occurs here at the drinking feast. Samson uh, then gives them the riddle. This is uh, verses 12 to 14. Then Samson said to them, let me now propound a riddle for you. If you will indeed tell it to me within seven days of the feast and find it out, Then I will give you 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. But if you are unable to tell me, then you shall give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, propound your riddle that we may hear it. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. But they could not tell the riddle in three days. So here's a glimpse maybe into Samson's mindset, right? We've already seen him uh, be driven by his fleshly desire, right? We've seen how he's willing to uh, disregard his Nazarite vow or potentially disregard his Nazarite vow uh, and the law for satisfying his flesh with pursuing this woman and also with food. Now he takes the opportunity at this party or at this feast to exercise his greed or his materialistic desire. Right, so Samson places a bet with 30 guests. Right, he says, I'm going to give you a riddle, and if you get it, 
you get 30 sets of essentially inner and outer wear, right? You'll get, if you get different explanation, and you'll get different explanations of what these linen wraps are. Um, they could be worn, you know, just generally as a simple covering, or uh, some people might uh, think of them as maybe undergarments. Um, but 30 linen wraps, and then also 30 sets of clothes, right? But these just aren't um, just any clothes, right? Uh, these are festival clothes, clothes for special occasions, right? You can think of, in Samson's case, maybe like a really nice suit. For whatever reason, Samson takes this opportunity to potentially make a score of a lifetime. And you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal, right? You all probably have closets full of clothes. But clothes back then, they weren't easy to come by. They were likely very costly and time-consuming to make. Right? The average person in their lifetime back then might, if they're lucky, just have one of each. But Samson's going to get 30. Right? Maybe he's looking to take advantage of the drunken state of his guests, or maybe he's thinking that they're never going to solve this riddle. But either way, if he wins, right, and he should... He's going to be looked at maybe as one of the richest men around. And he should win because this is one crazy riddle. Right? There's no way anyone but Samson would understand it because Samson is the only one in the world that knows what's happened with that lion. Right? So it could be three days. It could be 300 days. The Philistines are not going to solve this secret-laden riddle. So now they're mad. Right? Verse 13. Or um, verses um, 15 through 17, you can see um, how their anger is starting to kindle. Uh, verse 15 and through 17 reads this. Then it came about on the fourth day that, Samson's, that they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband so that he will tell us the riddle or we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us to impoverish us? Is this not so? Samson's wife wept before him and said, you only hate me and you do not love me. You have propounded a riddle to the sons of my people and you have not told it to me. And he said to her, behold, I have not told it to my father or mother. Should I tell it to you? However, she wept before him seven days while their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him so hard. She then told the riddle to the sons of her people. So now the guests, they turn against the bride, right? They are not going to be stumped by this Israelite, and they are not going to pay up on their bet, right? There is no way that they were going to be made or because this woman in their town decided to marry an Israelite. So they threaten her. And if you don't give us the answer to this riddle, we will burn you and your family alive. The consequences of Samson's actions are beginning to add up. Right? All these trips down to Timnah, and look what happens. Right? He causes his father and mother grief by wanting to marry this woman, then he causes them to sin by giving them defiled honey from a dead body. Now his secrets could cost his wife and her family their lives. And as the weeks come, you will see what happens to his wife. So there, right, with her life and the lives of her family in danger, she turns to Samson and she begs him to reveal the secret. Right? If you love me, why don't you tell me the secret? And if you're familiar with the narrative of Samson, right, this isn't the only time that he's going to hear this. Samson's wife then basically is in tears the whole time of the, of the feast, so Samson finally gives in. So in verse 18, they give him the answer. Right? So the men of the city said to him, on the seventh day before um, on the seventh day before the sun went down, this is what they said. What is sweeter than honey and what 
is stronger than a lion. And he, Samson, said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Right? The guests kind of beat the buzzer, if you will. Right? In the waning moments of the feast, they give Samson the answer to his unanswerable riddle. Right? And of course, Samson knows exactly how they got the answer. Right? The only person in the world who knows his secret right, is his wife. Right? She's the only other person that knew. So he says to them, if you have not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. So Tiff was asking me during the week, you know, you know, this passage, there's a lot about marriage. Are you going to give any marriage advice? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm not like, you know, I'm married, but I'm probably not like an expert in marriage. But I will tell you this. Uh, don't say this. Uh, don't say this. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not what you think it means, probably, but regardless of what it means, don't say it. Okay? So if you're looking to keep score of Samson's marriage so far, this is how it looks. Okay? All the guests are mad because of this riddle. His wife gets her and her family's lives threatened by the guests. Right. His wife cries the entire seven days of the feast, and he calls his wife a cow. Now, okay, so in the Old Testament, okay, cows were depicted as symbols of stubbornness and wildness, okay? Um, so that's kind of the imagery maybe that, you know, that we have here, um, not maybe what we think, um, but regardless, that's what he says. And now he has to come up with 30 linen wraps and 30 fancy outfits um, because he lost the bet. Right? Um, there, you know, maybe some of you that may be getting married soon, uh, this is not the best way to, okay, so I'll give two advices here. This is not the best way to start a marriage. Um, now, the chapter concludes like this. The Spirit of the Lord, okay, Spirit of the Lord, came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of them, and took their spoil and gave the changes of clothes to those who, who he told, to those who told the riddle. And his anger burned, and he went up to his father's house, but Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his friend. Right, that's how the chapter ends. Remember, when you see the Spirit of the Lord come upon Samson, that means deliverance is coming. Right? All the secrets that we've had so far lead us to the end of this chapter. Right? God's sovereignty, his secret plans, allowing for Samson to pursue and ultimately marry this Timnite woman. Right? The secret of the lion and the honey. Right? They provide a platform to for Samson to propose his secret riddle. And all of this leads to Samson losing the bet and needing to pay his wager. So what does Samson do? For the first time, he takes on the Philistines in battle. Right? And it wasn't really a battle. It was a slaughter. Right? They might have, these Philistines may have been just 30 young goats to Samson because the Spirit of the Lord was with him. So now we've got ourselves someone who's acting like a deliverer, someone who's acting like a savior. Right? The chapter ends then with Samson taking the spoils of his victory and paying his debt. He then returns home to his parents without his bride. And as a consequence, his wife is given over to, and the translation literally it says literally, uh, his best man. And this sets up the scenes for Samson's life, um, which we'll hear of in the coming weeks. So every time so far, when Samson goes down to Timnah, right, it's been to mingle with the Philistines and this woman, 
right? He's not going down to deliver the Philistines, right? He's doing the exact opposite. He's there to intermarry with them. He's there to be a part of them. But because of all the events that God has orchestrated, this time, right, when Samson goes down to meet the Philistines in the city of Ashkelon, right, he begins to fulfill God's role as the deliverer. Remember way back in chapter, or just back in chapter 13, the angel of the Lord said to his parents, right, he is going to begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And here we have Samson finally beginning to deliver, right? Despite everything that he's done so far, God has brought him to a place where he now is beginning to deliver the Israelites from the hand of the Philistines, right? It's different because the Spirit of the Lord is upon him this time, right? And as all these secrets are coming together, right, we begin to realize that Samson isn't Israel's true Savior. God is, right? God is Israel's Savior, right? And God is our Savior. So... As the coming weeks move on, again, um, we'll learn more about Samson, more about who he is, and more about how God moves through him. And again, we think about everything that's happened so far. You know, our image of Samson isn't that great. Um, but remember, in the end, if you make it all the way to Hebrews, he's accounted for as a man with great faith. Um, so that's just something to keep in mind as we move forward. Um, so let's close our time with a word of prayer. Uh, dear Lord, we just uh, thank you for this evening and uh, the opportunity to look into your word uh, as we uh, see the life of Samson, the life of our judges. Uh, a lot of times we may look and it may uh, seem to reflect the type of lives that we may lead sometimes, a life of compromise, a uh, compromise that leads to a life of sin. And uh, in a life of sin, we are unable um, to truly reflect uh, who you would have us be, uh, children in your kingdom, uh, men and women who uh, reflect who you are to the world. And, but we pray that as we study your word, that you would convict us, uh, you would give us the conviction and the resolve uh, to follow your word, uh, no matter what temptations or uh, compromises may seem to come our way. Mm-hmm. We just thank you. We just pray for the rest of this night. Uh, We pray for our time together in discussion and for fellowship. Uh, May it be honoring to you. Uh, In your son's name we pray. Amen.